you want to open up to the book of Mark, chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 13 through 17 this morning. It's Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. In our text today, we find ourselves in the throes of intense opposition to Jesus. It's Passover week, and Jesus has caused quite, quite the stir. If you remember, he entered the city on the back of a donkey and descended the Mount of Olives to chants of, Hosanna in the highest! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Later on, he entered the temple and overturned tables and drove those who were buying and selling out of the temple and claimed it as his own house. He cursed a fig tree as an object lesson for what will become of those who only appear to follow God, but whose lives are fruitless. He's demonstrated his authority time and again that it is from heaven, and he's taught that those who reject him will incur the wrath of God. Jesus has been poking the proverbial bear, if you will, and she is not happy. The religious establishment has been shaken up, and it's had enough of the wonderkind rabbi from the sticks of Galilee. They are seeking to destroy him, as noted by Mark in verse 12 of this chapter, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. I say destroy because uh, they're not looking to merely arrest him. I think that's the implication that we get from seeking to arrest him. It's in light of uh, verse 6 of chapter 3 where we're told they want to destroy him. And in verse 18 of chapter 11 where we're told again, these folks want rid of Jesus. They want to destroy him. So at any rate, the Sanhedrin, which is the supreme judicial council, of Judaism is is determined to find a way to be rid of Jesus. So what they're going to do here, and we'll see over the next few weeks together, is they're going to send three different groups to test and trap Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians are going to dare him to answer a question about taxation in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 12. The Sadducees are going to confront him about the resurrection in verses 18 through 27. And the scribes are going to interrogate him about the law in verses 28 through 44. In each story, Jesus is addressed as teacher. And then each Jesus demonstrates his authority, which has characterized his ministry from its inception. It's what makes people marvel at him. He teaches as one who has authority. And so that's the stage onto which we step this morning, last week we saw Jesus identify himself as the beloved Son of God and the Messiah by way of a parable and his appeal to Psalm 118. And he indicated that he knows the religious establishment wants him dead. And so we arrive at our verses today, verses 13 through 17. And the main idea of this section or this little pericope, the main idea I want you to uh, learn today, I guess, is that Christians submit to and obey earthly authorities in light of Jesus' ultimate authority. And so my goal this morning is to exhort you to submit to and obey earthly authorities in light of Jesus' heavenly authority. Let's pray together and get into the text. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that my words would be your words and that those things which flow from my personality and my sinfulness would be forgotten and overlooked, but that only your voice would be heard. Father, lift your word high this morning. We know that it won't return void and use it to bring glory unto yourself and to thrill our hearts in your presence. God, help us to love you. 
Help us to see you, to behold you this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into Mark's account here, I do think that Luke helps us see uh, what's going on just a little bit more. And so I'm going to read to you verse 20 of chapter 20 of Luke, and then we'll, we'll get to verse 13. This is what Luke writes. He says, So they watched him and sent spies, that's the religious folk, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. So these men that are about to approach Jesus, they approach him as a target, not, not a teacher. They hope to trap him. So, so keep so as to deliver him to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor, to give him up to the government, in your mind, on the back burner, as we work through this text. All right, verse 13, chapter 12, Mark. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. The they that is doing the sending is the Sanhedrin, and the they they send is quite interesting. You see, the the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't exactly like each other. In fact, they were enemies, but uh, I think the old adage proves true here. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so these strange bedfellows, united in their disdain for Christ, seek to trap him. If you want to think about it in contemporary terms, the, the Pharisees were more conservatives and the Herodians were more liberals, but, but they had joined forces in the fight against good. Pharisees didn't like Jesus because he was messing with their religious agenda, which was just that, their, their agenda. The Herodians were opposed to him because he was messing with their political agenda. They don't like Jesus. I think it does go to show you that, that if you follow Jesus as it relates to religion and politics, you probably won't fit nice and neat into the categories of Democrat or Republican. But you'll likely draw the ire of everyone. That's what Jesus is, is doing here. Everybody's mad at him. The point is that Jesus is challenging his culture, He's challenging the religious culture and the political culture at the same time. Cultural leaders are banding together to push back. They don't like it. They want to trap him in his talk. I mean, they want to catch Jesus saying something stupid here. What came immediately to my mind, for whatever reason, was uh, last election cycle, Mitt Romney made a comment about the 47%, and it didn't go well for him. He was caught in saying something silly. Or or maybe you have a a favorite uh, political blunder that you can think of where somebody said something that was kind of silly, uh, they were caught in a moment of weakness, and it just ruined their campaign, ruined their credibility. And that's the goal here. They want to catch Jesus saying something that will cost him to lose popularity with the people, and maybe even something that they can construe as illegal. Now these guys, they're, they're professional snakes, all right? They know well how to hide themselves in the grass until the moment is right to strike. And so they approach Jesus, not as the devils they are, but with angelic praise. 14, and they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion." For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. I mean, they're buttering him up here. Makes me think of Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. In Proverbs 26, 28. 
A lying tongue hates its victim, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Or maybe even, as we looked at a few weeks ago with John Carter, Psalm 5, verse 9. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. These folks are flattering Jesus. I think as a quick aside of application here, it's always wise to beware of those that are always flattering you or tempting you towards pride. Be careful. Jesus here will beware. He knows what they're up to. The Pharisees and and the Herodians are are lying through their teeth at Jesus. I mean, they're smiling as they pronounce judgment on themselves for knowing the truth about Jesus, articulating that truth, but not being changed by that truth. Dr. Aiken comments, they call him teacher, a title of respect, even though they had no respect for him. They tell him they know he is truthful, even though they will crucify him as a blasphemer. They tell him they know he is impartial, and they conclude that he teaches truthfully the way of God. Friends, be on guard against those who flatter and against being the flatterer. What do I mean? I mean it's possible to be just like the Pharisees, to know the truth, to be able to articulate the truth, but not be changed by the truth. Is it possible that that you, like the Pharisees and the Herodians, lie through your teeth to Jesus? Are you smiling as you shake hands with the church and listen to the word, all the while not experiencing or believing any of it? Have you learned about Jesus but ceased to be changed by Jesus. Heed the warning of James 2, 19 and 20. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? See, simply knowing the truth will not bring you peace with God. You must experience it so that your whole life is changed. Martin Luther once said, we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. See, the fruit of righteousness is always born in the lives of those that have been placed into God's vineyard. It's a sign of life together with Christ. Many have the right look, the right knowledge, and no fruit. They will be cursed like the fig tree. And those that reject Jesus and seek to trap him. I mean, Jesus tells us as much in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Don't just flatter God with lip service and religious activity. Believe in his greatness. Believe the gospel. Experience it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Delight in knowing and loving Jesus. He knows your heart. 
He knows it. He sees through you. Jesus knows what these guys are up to, and he sees through them. And we're not there yet, but check the, the first part of verse 15. Just three little words. Uh, knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus knows their hearts. He knows your heart. He knows that they are pretending to be one thing when in reality they are another. He knows their Krispy Kreme shops with tail inside. He knows they are hypocrites, and he knows that they're out the trap in. After all that flattery, they finally get to their question in the second part of verse 14. This is their question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? This is what uh, Alistair Begg calls a gotcha question. It's a question that puts Jesus in a no-win situation. Got to hand it to the unlikely band of brothers here. They've come up with a really good question. You see, the, the tax referred to is an imperial poll tax, which was first, it's first instituted back in AD 6 and resulted in some rebellion from the Jews. It was put down by Rome, obviously. But the amount required to satisfy this poll tax was a denarius, which is a day's wage in Palestine. And the Jews, you see, they despised this tax because it was a constant reminder of their subjugation to Rome, that Rome was in charge. Some religious groups inside of Judaism, known as the Zealots, thought that it was the worst thing in the world to pay this tax. And this was a hot-button issue, whether or not they should pay it. And so the reason they asked Jesus this question is because if he says, yes, pay the tax, then the people that are following him are highly likely to turn on him as a traitor of Israel. If he says not to pay it, he's likely going to be arrested and tried for insurrection or rebellion against Rome. Which, if, if you remember in Luke uh, chapter 23, that's one of the false accusations they bring against Jesus. They say he's riling up the people against Rome. He's trying to start a revolution. Jesus, with this question, it seemingly has Jesus impaled on the horns, horns of a dilemma. And then we read in verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? I think the word here for test is, is interesting. I'm not going to plumb the depths of it, but uh, just note that it's the same word that Mark uses in verse 13 of chapter 1 when Satan tempts or tests Jesus in the wilderness. I think that he uses the same word to give us a hint of their hypocrisy and of their motivations, that they are evil. I think Jesus asks them to examine their own hearts by questioning why they're putting him to the test. And despite their demonic motivation, he's going to provide them with an answer. He says, bring, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. I love that, that Jesus doesn't have a denarius or he's just trying for some dramatic flair. Give me one. I don't even know what it looks like. Uh, let me see it. He's got it. He's holding it up, looking at it. He asks a very clever question. Whose likeness or inscription is this? Whose inscription is this? I imagine that the crowd answered all at once and the sound of Caesar's name rolled through the crowd like a wave. Caesar, Caesar, Caesar. Right, the echo fades away. They said to him, Caesar's. See, on one side of the coin was a bust of Tiberius Caesar with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. The other side of the coin had an image of Tiberius' mother. Livia, with the words Pontificus Maximus, Pontifex Maximus. 
meaning high priest. The Jews obviously found this to be idolatrous. It was an idolatrous coin. For a man to claim to be God was blasphemy. For a woman to claim to be a priest, it was blasphemy. They didn't like this coin. And this was the coin with which they had to pay the tax. I mean, even the coin used to pay the tax was idolatrous. I mean, surely, from a Jewish perspective, Jesus would never support paying taxes to a state so corrupt as Rome. So Jesus is looking at Caesar's imprint. And imagine, in my imagination, he flips the coin back to its owner. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And at this point, in my imagination, the Herodians and the Pharisees are like getting ready for a chest bump. Like, we got him! They're going to turn on him. They're getting ready to high-five. They're like halfway there. And then Jesus continues as the mouths of the zealous Jews that are following have hit the ground. Pay the tax. Continues, he says, and to God, the things that are God's. And then this account simply ends, and they marveled at him. See, Jesus is putting politics in its place. Edwards writes, Caesar and God were ultimate and uncontested authorities in the political and religious climate of Jesus' day. And yet Jesus presumes to speak for both. The ultimate authority resided with God. And it's clearly implied in Jesus' use of the word image in verse 16 in the Greek, which is the same word used in Genesis 1.26 of humanity's creation in God's image. If coins bear Caesar's image, then they belong to Caesar. But humanity, which bears God's image, belongs to God. Jesus is saying here, give what is made in Caesar's image to Caesar, and what is made in God's image to God. Yes, give the tax to Caesar, and give your worship to God. Yes, you owe Caesar his coin, but you owe God your worship. Did you know that if you are a human being, you are infinitely valuable because you are made in the image of God? His image has been imprinted onto your DNA, and ultimately, you belong to him. Your life has value because you are made in God's image. That's what separates us from every other created thing. As the coin that bears Caesar's image ought to be returned to Caesar so too should we give our entire lives to God. The way we give ourselves to God, though, it's, it's not by following all of his precepts or being really good people, but by faith being united to Jesus Christ. When you believe in Jesus, you are united to him so that his life becomes your life. His death becomes your death. His image becomes your image. You see, because of our sin, we are unacceptable to God, even when we do really good things. We have broken his image. We're we're like a dollar bill that's been put through one of those shredders into a bunch of pieces. You can tell that we used to bear some image, but that image is greatly obscured. It is marred. Just like the shredded dollar bill is unacceptable payment, so too are we able to commend ourselves to God unacceptable before him, no matter how good we are with the scotch tape of law-keeping. And just like the shredded dollar bill is unacceptable payment, we're unacceptable to God, no matter how many good things we do. 
See, when we trust in Jesus, he takes the pieces of our lives, he takes the pieces of your life, and he mints you anew. He makes you acceptable to God so that you can, as Romans 12 says, offer your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. He restores the perfect image of God, and you've still got it now. It just doesn't look like it's supposed to. He restores it so that it's perfect, so that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus because your lives are unified. They're welded together. Jesus Christ brings you into the life you were created for. I mean, all of us were created to worship God by enjoying him forever. But in our sin, we abandoned that purpose. We abandoned our purposes and we lost ourselves. In Christ, we find ourselves, find our true self, become new creations, newly minted. We're finally able to live the purpose-driven life that we were created for. In Christ, we're able to give to God what is God's, our worship our very selves. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. Let's not miss some important implications of Jesus affirming that taxes ought be paid to Caesar. Aiken notes again, by his reply, Jesus acknowledges the legitimacy of human government he is no antichrist, antichrist. He's no anarchist. God has ordained the family, the church, and human government. It has the right to levy taxes, and we have the responsibility to pay. It has the right to make laws, and we have the responsibility to obey. Paul and Peter reaffirm this even though they lived during the reign of the lunatic Nero. I mean, dude was crazy. But they still write this. Paul writes this in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's servant, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And Peter comments in his book, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 13, be subject to the Lord, to, or for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Governments are a good thing. 
any government is better than no government. And any existing government is legitimate in the eyes of God. The state is a common grace. Common grace, it's a theological phrase that that just refers to the natural blessings uh, which God gives us in this present life that have no part of our salvation. They're not tied to salvation in any way. So because of God's common grace, when anybody goes outside and the conditions are right and they plant a garden, it yields a harvest. It's this reason that food tastes good to everybody. It's this reason that art is beautiful. This reason that we learn to make advances in science and technology. These are common graces. Everybody can enjoy them. As James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It's from God. And government is a good gift. The state is a God-ordained enterprise through which people can be blessed. And so, followers of Christ submit to political authorities, just as we submit to other authorities, because they reflect God's ultimate authority. Right here we we come to our main idea. Christians submit to and obey earthly authorities in light of Jesus' ultimate authority. Our submission to earthly authorities in light of Jesus' ultimate authority means that Christians are good citizens, no matter where they live. It means that as good citizens, Christians work towards the flourishing of all people everywhere. This means that we care for the poor, the marginalized, the struggling immigrant, and the unborn child alike. We want them to experience God. We want to work for their good. It means that everything we do is for the benefit of others. Christians express our love for God by loving our neighbors fiercely. We work according to the government structures to bring about changes and policies that are congruent with Scripture because we believe humanity flourishes when it follows God's design for all of life. Christians support the government even as we work to correct it. We obey the law. We pay our taxes. We have legitimate responsibilities to the government. And as long as those obligations do not interfere with our ability to honor and worship God, we are to fulfill them. It is our duty as followers of Christ. So the point here is to say, be a good citizen. Submit to earthly authorities in light of Jesus' ultimate authority. The second part of that sentence is is crucial. It's really important. And it says, in light of Jesus' ultimate authority. Because if ever an earthly authority commands us to do that which is contrary to what God has commanded us to do, we must disobey the earthly authority and obey God. We're given an excellent example of this in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Peter and the apostles are being questioned. And the high priest questioned them and saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, that's the name of Jesus, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. We obey earthly authorities like our government in light of our commitment to Christ. The state's jurisdiction does not include the conscience And we must listen to God and not man. I think this is relevant uh, in the times in which we live. 
I think it's important for us to become more familiar with what it means to peacefully disobey the government so that we can follow Christ. I mean, to this point in the West, we've been greatly privileged. We enjoy all the freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment. However, I think the clouds on the horizon are ominous, and we would do well and be wise to prepare for a storm. I mean, already the state is attempting to force Christians and others to join the contemporary sexual revolution or else. I mean, one needs look no further than the small bakery in Oregon that was fined $135,000 as a result of its owner's refusal to celebrate a same-sex ceremony. Or an opinion piece that appeared in the New York Times demanding evangelical Christians get over believing that homosexuality is a sin or suffer the consequences. I mean, the language in the article couldn't be more chilling. Let me quote for you. So our debate about religious liberty should not include a conversation about freeing religions and religious people from prejudice. They needn't cling to these prejudices because they can jettison them, much as they've jettisoned other aspects of their faith's history, rightly bowing to the enlightenments of modernity. The author plainly wants to ensure that all religions, especially Christianity, are made to bow to the enlightenment of modernity. To these assertions, to these things, we must say unabashedly, no. To the Supreme Court, who has made what God has called unlawful, the law of the land, we must say no. Not because we're we're hateful, but because we believe God's word to be true. And because we believe that his word, obedience to it, is for the good of our neighbors. So no, we will not call good what God has called evil. No, we cannot celebrate what scripture calls sin. No, we will not give approval to destructive practices. To do so would be the epitome of hatred. As Christians, we must love our neighbors and our country enough to tell them no, especially when they're indulging in what the Bible calls deadly behavior. We must trust God enough to say yes to his commands and no to culture when the two come into conflict. Government is good, but it has limits. Peacefully disobeying the state to obey Jesus is probably going to be in some of our futures. And it will likely bring hardship. It might mean losing your business. Are you ready to lose it? It might mean losing your job. Are you willing to lose it? It might mean losing your tax-exempt status as a religious institution. Are we ready to lose it? Do not forget the words of Jesus in Mark 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He's always demanded your whole life. The call to follow Jesus has always been a call to die to yourself daily. Luke recounts, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Remember too, Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. His words have been proven true throughout church history and they will continue to be proven true. Paul's words are not without reason. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be 
persecuted. Are you ready? Do you love Jesus enough to be ready to suffer? To be marginalized? To be dismissed as a radical? For many of us, this might bring fear. Many, many of you might be afraid, might be tempted to negotiate parts of Scripture away, a little tentative to share the gospel clearly and boldly. I have been. It's normal. But let me encourage you with the words of Dr. Moore here. The worst thing that possibly could happen to you is not being disinvited from Thanksgiving dinner with friends or family. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is not being marginalized by culture. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is not being thrown into a Middle Eastern prison. The worst thing that could happen to you is not being beheaded by jihadists. The worst thing that could happen to you is being abandoned to your sin, being cursed by God, being crucified outside the camp. And that has already happened to you. If you are united to Christ by faith, the worst case scenario for your life is already true. And the best case scenario for your life is already true. The best case scenario for your life is not that you will have a claim in culture. The best case scenario for your life is not that you will have a picture-perfect family. And it's not that you will exist in a culture that has traditional family values. The best thing that can happen to you is being raised from the dead to newness of life and fellowship with the living God and being assigned by Him a mission as an heir of God and joint heir with Christ. And that has already happened to you too. If Jesus Christ is the King of the universe and you are united to Him by faith, what are you worried about? Friends, do not be afraid. The church isn't going anywhere. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. The kingdom we belong to, it might not seem like much. At times it may seem as insignificant as a mustard seed, but it is growing. There will come a day when the sky splits open and the world gasps at the impossibly large branches as trumpets herald the return of the king. So no matter how we are suffering, no matter how we are persecuted, no matter how we might become marginalized, do not forget our identity is not in whatever is happening to us right now. No, friends, our identity is seated at the right hand of God and He is feeling just fine. Because Christians are so intimately united to Jesus Christ, we truly are connected to one another. We are truly an international people. Nations and politics don't divide Christians because our unity in Christ supersedes every other commitment. (laughs) This is why Republicans and Democrats should be able to worship together in the same church. Sure, they have different ideas about what will lead to human flourishing and the good of our nation, but those political commitments fade in light of the glory of Christian fellowship. They are but a match Compared to the sun, our entire lives as Christians ought to be lived in obedience to Jesus' kingship because he's worthy. And so we do obey the state. 
as a reflection of our devotion to the kingdom of God, we are good citizens. Indeed, we pray for our leaders and for our neighbors. We want to love them well. We work to the end of promoting human flourishing in the lives of our friends and in our country. We submit to and obey earthly authorities in light of Jesus' heavenly authority, his ultimate authority. We render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And we marvel at the beauty of Christ our Lord. Don't forget to marvel, church. If you're, not, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that you are welcome. This is not a uh, us versus the world message. Here we believe that our uh, battle is not against flesh and blood, but against evil and against the present forces of darkness. Friend, we, we love every person. We want you to know you're welcome here. We want to be your friend. We want to help you see Jesus as beautiful. Church, the debt is paid, the tomb is empty, and the throne is occupied. Jesus is the king. He reigns now, and he is coming soon. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the glory of the gospel. Lord, you are so good to us. Your beauty is beyond all forms of measurement. No eye has seen, no ear has heard the things that you have in store for us or how great you are. We sing of your greatness and of your glory and of your mercy and we experience you in the salvation of our souls as you knit our hearts one to another across geopolitical lines. Oh God, but this is but a small foretaste of what is to come. This is a shadow of the substance we see now only in part. And God, we look forward to the day when we shall see fully, even as you fill us up now with your Holy Spirit. God, you are glorious. We pray that you would knead these hearts into our souls and into our bones and that we would be changed by your word so that we would never leave here the same, that each moment of each day we would be becoming more and more like you as your spirit works out our salvation in us. Help us to submit ourselves to your kingship as we live out our lives as good citizens in this world. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.